Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church. Good morning, church. How are we doing? All right. That extra hour of sleep is good for us. I like it. As I said, my name is John Michael. I'm one of the elders on staff here at RCC. Um, it's a joy to be with you, uh, digging into God's Word together. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through a portion of Matthew's Gospel that we call the Sermon on the Mount over the past two or three months now. Uh, we've taken a couple of breaks here and there as we've gone through it. We did a four-week series specifically on worry and anxiety, actually stemming from the Sermon on the Mount. And then last week, we had the privilege of hearing from another one of our elders, Jason Hall, as he led us through one of Paul's letters to Timothy. We'll be jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount today, and I apologize for a little bit of the back-and-forth whiplash, but the passage that we're reading is critical for our ability to love one another and the world well. The passage that Wes just read for us, the first verse, Matthew 7, 1, interestingly is the most, arguably, common verse quoted by people outside of the church. We've all heard it before, right? Do not judge and you will not be judged. Or as is more commonly read, the King James Version, with a little bit of attitude, judge not, lest you be judged. Know why we always gravitate towards that one, I guess just because of the natural sass that comes with the King James Version. But it's growing in popularity over the past five to ten years within the people of God as well. Unfortunately, it tends to be a verse that we take out of context and apply in an unbiblical fashion. So our goal today is twofold. One, better understand what Jesus is actually saying when he says, Do not judge, and you won't be judged, and learn how to actually live it out. You see, when we take this verse in isolation outside of the context in which it was written, great harm is done to the body of Christ, as well as the on-looking world. Christians have a tendency to make the claim that Jesus is saying, we don't have the right to speak truth into one another's lives, that every single form of judgment underneath the sun is prohibited. So it shouldn't be a surprise to to us that we see Christians using the verse as license to live however they want. Sex outside of the covenant of marriage is at an all-time high among Christians. Divorce rates are just as high inside the church as they are outside of the church. And I'd be willing to wager that if we took a cumulative poll of the finances and calendars of the Western church, chances are we'd find that our hearts don't look a whole lot different than the hearts of the world around us. Because where our treasure lies, there our hearts are also. And it seems like the growing trend is that we use our time and our money for things other than the advancement of God's kingdom. Or if we're not taking this one verse in isolation to live however we want, we're using it to excuse however our brothers and sisters want to live. We say, who am I to judge 
how have you have chosen to live your life? Who am I to say anything contrary to what you have deemed is your truth? We would hate to make anybody feel bad or uncomfortable, so we either step back and don't say anything at all, or we extend a blanket excuse of acceptance. It doesn't matter as long as you're happy. There's one really big problem with this. It's just not biblical. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. If we look at the surrounding text that this verse is written in, the entire passage that Wes read, as well as what was before it and what's after it in the entire Bible, we see that Jesus isn't at all saying we don't have the right to speak truth into one another's lives. In fact, in our passage today, he says, take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Help them know about the sins in their hearts and help them overcome them. Just a few short verses later, chapter 7, verse 15, he says, we should be on guard against false prophets. That there are those among us who are dressed in sheep's clothing, but internally there are wolves ready to devour. And he says, the way you'll know who they are is by actually making a judgment call on their character. We look at their life and we compare it to the ways of God. Is this leader, is this teacher truly living and speaking the ways of God? Or is there discrepancy? Even further, in the same book, chapter 18, Jesus says, if your brother is sinning against you, take his sin to him, and if he listens, you've preserved his faith. Again and again, over Scripture, we see God telling us we should be speaking truth into one another's lives. There are times where making a judgment call is not just good, but necessary. The question then is, how do we do so in a way that honors God, upholds the truth of his word, and builds up the people of God? Because if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, the theology behind this passage isn't all that difficult. The hard part is what's inside of us, our sinful hearts not wanting to get on board with the ways of God. So I have three observations for us today from our text that I think, I hope, have been praying all week long will help us serve one another well, take our own hearts, submit them to the will of God, and represent him well to the world. Let's look at the text. Matthew 7, verses 3 to 5. Jesus says, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. First observation, we have to start with ourselves. Before we ever speak into somebody else's life, we have to examine the sin in our own hearts. See, we have this really unfortunate tendency to accuse others of their wrongdoings while excusing ourselves. There's just no room for that within the body of Christ. It's actually childish. In fact, I would say one of the most common ways we see this is among children. 
A young child will go tattle on his younger brother or sister. All the while, he was participating in the wrongdoing himself. And the parent says, no, 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 no. You worry about yourself. I'll deal with your brother or sister. In fact, while I was preparing this week, my wife Catherine told me this reminded her of an experience she had as a little girl. Her family had a family reunion. She's got a massive family, so like 40, 50 people. And they're all praying before they enjoy a meal together. And as soon as the prayer finished, one of her cousins blurted out, Catherine had her eyes open while we were praying, which is comical, but ironic, because the only way you can tell that somebody else had their eyes open while praying is if you had your eyes open while you were praying, right? Way to throw yourself under the bus, too. And this really is comical when it's amongst children. Not right, but comical. It's heartbreaking when we do it as the body of believers. We could all stand to be far more grieved by the sin in our own hearts. So what does this mean? It means that we don't have the right to speak into somebody else's sin if we're doing the same thing. You don't get to speak into your roommate's porn addiction if you're sleeping with your girlfriend. You don't have the right to call somebody else out on their foul language if you're talking bad about your boss behind her back. That's not the way it works. Jesus says, don't be a hypocrite. Practice what you preach. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order, um, we owe much of what we know today about contemplative rhythms to him. He said, he who goes about to reform the world must begin with himself or he loses his labor. It makes it all in vain, worthless. Might as well have not even done it. One of the fastest ways for us to hurt one another and harm our witness to an onlooking world is acting hypocritically with one another by calling each other out on our sins doing the same thing behind closed doors or in front of them. Ironically, the things we tend to nitpick one another for are the very sins that we struggle most with in our own hearts. See, sin has this way of bubbling to the surface in the heart of a child of God. Our hearts, we know, are sinful, but we also know that the creator of the universe gave us his spirit, which is holy. And those two are in conflict with one another. So God's Spirit causes our sin to bubble up to the surface so that we can deal with it. This reminded me of when somebody we love passes away. I'm sure we've all experienced something like this. It's like you start seeing death everywhere, right? You turn on the TV and there's a commercial about life insurance. Prepare for the unexpected. You don't know when it's coming. You turn on the radio and you hear a news blurb about so-and-so famous person who's passed away. You're driving down the road and you see a billboard for funeral costs. From Texas, there's billboards everywhere. It's not a DC thing, I realize. But we get the point. When you're going about your normal life and you're not in the thick of grief, all of these things just kind of blur to the background. But when you're walking through it, 
when you're in the middle of the pain, you see it everywhere. The same is true of our sin. When we're walking in unrepentant sin, God's Spirit causes that to bubble to the surface so that we can deal with it. And there's two ways we can deal with it. The healthy way is to repent, right? We turn from our wicked ways. We go towards the ways of the kingdom of God, just like we've been learning all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Or we try to stuff it down even further. We ignore it. We push it to the background. Well, it's going to keep bubbling up, and you're going to start seeing it in other people. Unfortunately, we tend to then, instead of confront our sin, accuse others of it. In some weird, sick way, it makes us feel better about the sin in our hearts by condemning others for theirs. We have to practice, practice what we preach. Jesus says, don't be a hypocrite. Take a look at your own heart first, and then speak truth into your brother or your sister's life. But as we're dealing with our own heart and we're trying to guard against hypocrisy, we also have to guard against self-righteousness. Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. There is only one true judge, and we're all going to be judged, right? Jesus is perfect. We're not. When we're aware of our own sinfulness, it does this amazing thing of creating empathy in our hearts for one another. When we're not aware of the sin in our own hearts, we're hurtful. We look down. We speak poorly of one another. This is kind of a teaser to next week's sermon when we deal with the passage on the Sermon on the Mount that we call the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, here in verses 1 and 2, Jesus is essentially saying, do unto others as you would have God do unto you. Do you want mercy and grace for your wrongdoings, for your sins? Extend that to one another dealing harshly with each other, condemningly towards one another, well, we can expect to see, receive the same harshness from God. This isn't karma. It's called consequences, right? Yes, we're forgiven and washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Amen. But that doesn't mean this life isn't free of consequences. It turns out Ice Cube was right all along. We have to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. We have to be willing to look at our own hearts, right? How do you want to be dealt with? Offer that to one another as well. Because we either build one another up or we tear each other down. And there is no in-between in the family of God. What are you choosing today? Second observation for us. After we start with ourselves, after we examine our own hearts, then we step in and we seek to restore one another. The Gospel of John starts with John saying that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And a few chapters later, we see this really beautiful expression of that grace 
and truth. Chapter 8, Jesus has an encounter with a woman that's caught in adultery. He's teaching at the temple, and the Pharisees, the religious authorities of the day, bring her to Jesus. Now, it's important to note, she wasn't just guilty of adultery. She was actually caught in the act. So they're dragging her in naked, in a shameful state. And they march up to Jesus and say, the law of Moses says we should stone this woman. What do you say, Jesus? Well, we got to back up a bit. You see, the Pharisees, the only reason they're there, the only reason this encounter is happening because, is because they want to catch Jesus in some kind of heresy so that they can actually condemn him to death. He's ruffled their feathers so much that they're sick of it. They want no more of him. But it also means that they don't actually care about this woman. They're not concerned with her walking in the ways of God. They're just using her as a pawn to get at Jesus. <laughs> the passage says that Jesus actually bent down and started drawing in the sand. You've got to be really calm and collected to be able to do that in this kind of a situation. So they ask him again, what do you say we should do, Jesus? And he looks at them and says, let he among you who is without sin cast the first stone. And in a moment that Hollywood couldn't even capture, starting with the oldest Pharisee and working all the way down to the youngest, one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away. They were so eager to condemn Jesus to death and so eager to condemn this woman to death that they completely looked over their own sins. That's why that first step is so important. Because if we don't do it, there's no way we can seek to restore one another. Paul says we have to speak truth in love. Our tendency, we see this in the Pharisees and in Jesus, the wrong, the wrong way and the right way is there's a tendency to either go headfirst, all truth, and no grace. When we do this, we harm one another. We speak unkindly to one another. We create division amongst us. Or the other wrong way to go about it is nothing but grace at the expense of truth. We elevate somebody's feelings and emotions above the word of God. Neither of these are right. What did Jesus do? The one person in the whole world who had every right to condemn this woman didn't. He looked at her after all the Pharisees had left and said, where are they? Does nobody condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. So he replied, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. See, he saw the woman in front of her in all her brokenness and shame, and he extended grace and love to her, but not at the expense of truth. He simultaneously loved her and called her to repentance. Turn from your wicked ways and pursue the ways of the kingdom of God. Sin no more. Just a quick window into the depravity of man. 
we actually have entire TV shows based off of this. Like, that's American Idol, right? Why does anybody ever watch the first couple episodes of a new season of American Idol? We want to see the train wrecks, right? We want to see how Simon Cowell is going to respond to the next guy who thinks he's the greatest gift from God to the world musically. But how did we get there? Nobody loved these people enough to speak up. Tell them, hey, I love you, but you can't sing. Please don't do this. Instead, we coddle them. You can do whatever you put your mind to. Follow your heart. You can be whatever you want to be. Or we cowardly step aside and say, well, not a good idea, but if it makes you happy, go for it. And then they become a spectacle for the world. But it's also an illustration of, of that person. They're so blinded by their passion for being famous, their desire to be a superstar, that they themselves can't see that they can't sing. We all have these blind spots. You may not be trying out for American Idol. Most of us probably shouldn't. I definitely never will. But we need one another to point out the blind spots in our life, the sins that we aren't aware of. Because by definition, we can't see them, right? That's why they're called blind spots. We have to love each other in a way that isn't willing to watch one another walk headlong into the pain, the sin, the destruction that sin always brings. And as we do so, as we step in in love with grace and truth, we have to remember it's stepping in. Our proximity matters to one another as we speak truth into each other's lives. We don't judge from a distance. We enter into the messiness of life. We got to ask ourselves, am I invested in this person's life? Or am I just idly commenting from a safe and comfortable position? We should take note of verse 5. Jesus says, take the speck out of your brother's eye. Not make them aware of it, not just point it out. It's active participation, right? Take out the speck. Paul says it like this. If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, aka the body of Christ, restore such a person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carry one another's burdens. Again, active participation, not just idle commentary. Nobody likes the Simon Cowell approach. So let's talk about real life. When your brother or your sister stumbles, are you seeing the person first or the sin? Are you expecting them to fix themselves outside of the care and support of biblical community? Or are you rolling up your sleeves, willing to get involved in the mess and walk out the journey of restoration with them, regardless of the impact it has on your time, your life, even your reputation? But don't miss what Paul says 
are you also guarding your own heart? So that as you walk the journey out with them, we don't go back to step one and become hypocritical, become self-righteous in the process. What about spiritual leaders? Those in the Christian spotlight, when somebody stumbles, is caught in sin, how do you respond? Are you assuming you have a crystal clear picture of what's going on from 2,000 miles away while you watch on your computer screen or listen to the podcast on your phone? Or are you humbly acknowledging the fact that the situation is far more complicated than could ever be explained in a quick social media post? Are you actually praying for the person who's sinned? Or are you just going straight to condemnation, judging them as guilty and deserving of everything they have coming to them? Are you judging their internal heart motives in this situation, despite the fact that you don't even know them? Or are you humbly acknowledging that you're just as capable of the same sins as they are. We either restore or we build up. We have to choose. We're nearly there, y'all. Final observation. As we do this, starting with ourselves and then approaching one another in truth and love with as much grace as we can, we have to remember that we keep this here. We keep it in the family. Matthew 7, 5, again, hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of, out of what? Your brother's eye. Not your non-believing neighbor or the atheist at work whose lifestyle you disagree with. Or it's voting week, right? Not planned, by the way. The politician who claims to be a Christian and is for something you're against? Your brother and sister, right here, not the outside world. See, inside the church, we know that we're all a bunch of broken, messed up, sinful people, all equally in need of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Outside of the church, though, Things operate under a different economy. You screw up, you pay the price. Go against your word and you'll forever be a hypocrite. It doesn't work when we take our way of living, our standards, the laws of Jesus Christ, and we try and force them on an on-looking world. It's not our job to judge the world. That's God's job. In fact, Paul says it like this, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. So we, Jesus say, we see Jesus say in verse 6, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Things just got really weird. We'll, we'll clear it up, I promise. But first, a quick little analogy. I was a Boy Scout 
growing up, and I loved it. Man, the, the camping, learning the different knots, earning my totem chips so I could whittle different things with my pocket knife. That love is carried on. We seriously considered going camping this weekend, which, if you know me, isn't really that far-fetched until you consider the fact that I have a six-month-old who you've probably been hearing all morning. Not sure if we made the right decision not to go or not, but we didn't go. Regardless, I loved being a Boy Scout. And when I made the transition from Cub Scouts into Boy Scouts, I was young. I was somewhat innocent, but really naive. So I'd be at school, and somebody would say something really unkind or act untruthfully in class or just, in general, be a jerk. Now, there's this thing in Boy Scouts called the, the Boy Scout Law, the ways that you're supposed to live as a Boy Scout. It says, a scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. I've said it thousands of times. I could never forget it, even if I wanted to. And I would witness these things. I'd get really frustrated. I'd get what I thought was righteously angry inside. So I'd walk up and Hey, what are you doing? He's got a short, sweet, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind of beating, triple, 30, brave, clean, and reverent. And they'd stare at me, and then they'd make fun of me, and then they'd threaten to beat me up, and I'd run away. I only did this a couple times before I realized, you don't talk about being a Boy Scout in public school. It's just not a good idea. Jesus is talking about the exact same thing here. God's word, his law, is speaking to his people about his ways of living. It's not addressed to those outside of the family. The term Bible bashers exists for a reason. For centuries, Christians have beat people upside the head with God's word, trying to force his laws down people's throat that never agreed to them in the first place, never signed up for this whole Christianity thing. And Jesus says, don't take the pearls of the gospel and shove them down people's throats. It creates far more harm than good. You end up pushing people away further and further from truth. Their hearts become harder and harder to his good news. Now, remember, Jesus said that the world will hate us simply because we belong to him. In case you haven't noticed, they do. But we don't have to add fuel to the fire. We don't have to go make things even harder on ourselves than they already are. Our inability to heed this truth is just a recipe for further and further hatred towards anything associated with the name of Christian. But does that mean that we stop sharing the gospel? Does that mean we abandon a life of evangelism because this is only for us? Absolutely not. We boldly live out our faith, right? We're unashamed of the truth, but we also humbly seek God's spirit to reveal soft and willing hearts. And as he does, we press in. If people resist or aren't interested, we simply take our battle internal. We fight in prayer, not with our words, not with force. 
We humbly acknowledge that God is far more capable than we are. Does this mean that we ignore the injustice in the world, the pain, the brokenness, the hatred that we see in the culture around us? Absolutely not. The psalmist says, blessed are those who observe justice and who uphold righteousness at all times, not just on Sunday at church or on a Tuesday night in your community group with the people of God, at all times. We always strive to care for the orphan and the widow, the marginalized and the oppressed. We always speak truth in love. We always use the influence God has given us. God has given us such incredible influence in this city. As we do that, as we live it out in the circles he's placed us in, we live out the words that the prophet Micah taught us. We do justice and we love mercy. And the one we tend to forget, we walk humbly with our God. And I would argue one of the best ways we can walk humbly with God is by seeing others as more important than ourselves. But that's not just the one that's experiencing the injustice. We have to extend it to those doing the injustice as well. Are you grieved by the wrongdoer or just full of hatred towards them? Are you fighting for them in prayer just as much as you're fighting for those suffering? We have to be willing to ask these questions. Y'all, I spent a lot of time this week on my knees because I knew I was about to get up and teach on a passage that dealt with hypocrisy. I'm not up here as somebody who has everything together. The reality is that person doesn't exist outside of Jesus Christ. But I'm on a journey just like you are. So there were multiple times throughout the week where I had to set my pen down. I had to push in my chair and go seek out a brother. Say, hey, I just need to confess. I'm having some really self-righteous, judgmental thoughts. I'm looking down on this person for the way that they're acting. They're not aware of it, but it's inside my heart, and I hate that. Will you pray for me? Will you walk this out as I seek to live above the ways of my heart and grasp the ways of God? That's the invitation today, that we would all do that together. Like every other section in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is telling us the motivation we act from. Our heart posture matters greatly as we speak truth into one another's lives, as we interact with the world around us. We have to make sure we start with ourselves. Can we genuinely say with Christ, with, with Paul, Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the worst? Or is there even a hint of self-righteousness in our hearts? If there is, just press pause. Go deal with it. 
and then press in with a brother or a sister. Let's be people that have courage to call sin a sin, right? And in love, with as much grace as we can, speak truth to one another. Not from an air of self-righteousness or condescension, but not ignoring truth as we do it either. And let's remember, we're a family. We don't always feel it. We don't always look like it. The word of God is true and infallible. And if he says it, we should embrace it. But that means we got to keep these things amongst ourselves. We can't force them on other people who never signed up for it. This is hard stuff, guys. But it's so, so beautiful as we humble ourselves before our God, acknowledge his ways are better than ours, to see hearts slowly change, to see this community live out our purpose of seeing people restored by Jesus right here amongst ourselves so that we can then go and live out a calling of mission. Would you join me in prayer and in hope that Jesus would do that work more and more as we go forward? Father God, I confess before you that I am sinful and broken. That there is wickedness in my heart that I am ashamed of. I equally cling to the truth that you have called me out of shame and into the glorious hope that your son is better than I could ever be. God, we have a tendency of saying one thing and doing another, of boasting about your ways while we defile them. God, give us the courage to admit our failures, to seek out a brother or a sister and fall on our knees and confess, to repent and sin no more. God, give us the courage to speak truth in love in one another's lives not from a distance, but sitting right next to one another. God, help us to let the barriers down that keep people at arm's length. That we would desperately desire the help and support of one another. God, forgive us for misrepresenting you to the world. The harm we have caused. Only you can write. But as we go forward today, God, help us to see our neighbor 
Help us to love and serve them from a genuine spirit. And we trust that you will be the one that changes hearts, not us. Father, we love you and we need you. Lead us forward in the mighty name of Jesus.